Welcome to A Pint with Shawnee B, coming to you again from London. I have a great guest today, someone I'm really looking forward to talking to. She's a legend of the UK media and advertising scene. Well, she's crinkling her nose here when I say that, but she recently won a very prestigious prize, which is the Macintosh Medal, given to very few people for a personal and public service to the advertising business. She has a very, very full career. She worked at media agencies, TV companies, and... In her mid-50s, we'll talk about ageism, uh, she set up Thinkbox, which is a advocacy body for commercial television in the UK. Welcome to the podcast, Tess Alps. How are you? I'm great, Sean. Thank you for inviting me. We talked about Tess's name before I pressed record, but it is a very cool name. It's a brilliant name. There are no other Tess Alps in the world, as far as I can see. Yeah, yeah. I find finding on Facebook would be easier. People say, you know, because obviously I'm quite a feminist, but it is my husband's name. So, but I have been married 43 years, and back then it was, it would have been strange to not take your husband's name. But I was called Tessa Boot. So, um, taking Alps was a no-brainer, really. I don't think so. Feminism. Let's start there. I'm a feminist. you know, it's very funny watching men slightly uh, find it difficult to say they're feminists, which is weird. It is a shame, isn't it? Where but is it going? Are we happy? Are we going places? Uh, it's taking longer than uh, we'd all like, but it's generational. It's so deeply cultural that I think expecting a quick fix is probably mm. uh, absurd. I do see progress. You know, I've got a son of 24 and his mate's... I don't think it would ever occur to them to not think of women as being equals and to not objectify them. Although having said that, last year the industry launched something called Time 2, which is sort of movement against sexual harassment in the UK. Before we launched it, we did a massive survey across the industry and it was still depressing to see that there was a lot of sexual harassment still among, uh, for young people, young women mainly, but still some, some young men too. And some of the young women told us how... In schools, they were treated appallingly, driven by the sort of easy availability of online pornography. So I say young men, but maybe there are groups of young men who uh, are learning to disrespect women for all sorts of other reasons. So anyway, just got to keep going. The advertising business, of course, Mad Men, etc., renowned Mm. for pretty appalling treatment of, of women back through the ages. And still, I mean, when I was working in New York in the in the 2008 or so it was you know they, they weighed in and they, they're very kind of oh you gotta be careful but you always feel they're only doing because they have to for legal mm-hmm. reasons and not for yeah. a bona fide yeah. reasons I mean the bosses I've had in advertising the best ones by and large have been women because it's a kind of a dick measuring competition yeah. with a lot of the men and you see one, yeah see I mean friend. I try not to make men the enemy because they're most, mo- mostly not and they mostly want to be helpful and I think we also have to be forgiving you know because it's very easy to jump down the throats of people and, and alienate them, um, alienate blokes who, who don't want to be seen as the enemy because they don't think they're the enemy in their head. So it is just a, a constant cultural change um, and everything we can do. I am very lucky to sit on the Council of the Advertising Standards Authority, and so you might be aware that um, they launched an anti-gender stereotyping project last year and it will come into force this June. So that's an interesting thing. So what you don't want is for advertising itself to be part of the problem. We look back on ads, you know, it's just horrendous. Or the woman so, draped on the car. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Or the women, only the woman the clearing up after a family of useless males and then the woman runs around dishing up dinner and, and doing the washing up. So we'll see if that has any... What was your view on the recent Gillette 
I used to work on Gillette. I was a yeah. global strategist on that, not for this ad, but yeah. I was killed trying to tell them to stop. I mean, they, they, I called them in an article I wrote when it came out the most benignly misogynistic advertiser of that size in mm. history because women's role was to stroke the smooth man's mm-hmm. cheek with the back mm. of their hand and spoon yeah. at him. Yeah. And then they bring this thing out, which, you know, I love, I liked because it was taking a stand and they yeah. were finally standing for something instead of like overpriced Yeah, I, I, I'm much happy that they tried to do it and I just hope that it isn't just an advertising thing, it that, it's a, that it's a cultural company thing. No, they're we'll about see. Hands and faces well, we'll see, we'll see, because that makes it very shallow and not very convincing, I think. So you have to follow through in the positive sense of that phrase yeah, rather than... Yeah. It's just work in progress. Were you surprised at the backlash to the letter from men? I was, and we, I, I was, was surprised that they were so vocal, publicly yeah. vocal. I thought they might... F- some of them might feel that, but not say anything. But the fact they felt it was okay to say, uh, you know, this is a load of rubbish, seemed yeah. extraordinarily rash. In my article, I said there's no, in my view, there's no man who could ever possibly have a problem with an ad like that. A man who respects women, yeah. who supports me too, who supports yeah. feminism. And so that what it did was it squeezed out a lot of the kind of, you know, I, I got into a bit of trouble for calling them incels. I was only joking, you know. But but you know, this kind of this this toxic uh, mm. masculinity. There's a sort of latent toxic that's yeah. there, dis, you know, here's lurking. Here's more looking. Looking. <laughs> no, no. I mean, yeah. Here's more. I'm kind of going. Yeah, whatever. Where How does a, a Tess Alps turn into what you are today? I want to talk. I talk a little bit about background and where you came from. And mm-hmm. where, you, where were you born? In? Oh my God! Well, I was born in Nottinghamshire mm-hmm. of. Uh, a bloke who'd been a miner's son and my mother from Kilkenny in Ireland. She she was a nurse. Do you go back to Kilkenny much? I do. I do go to Kilkenny and I see my lovely Irish family who I adore. And my Irishness is a very strong part of me and not just as a sort of Brexit sanctuary potential. No, I just feel culturally uh, very close to it. I read English at university so obviously Irish literature is stupendous so yeah, yeah, yeah. why would you not want to claim you're good at the words we you say in Ireland Kilkenny is the best so most of the best cities or places to visit in Ireland mm. are on the coast all around the country that's With one the of the few of Kilkenny, it's true Kilkenny gets a, gets a, gets a it's, a, it's a cracking city isn't it the fabulous art scene going on actually there and craft scene and, you know, so was it a working class, class background you had? working class background too. both parents worked in a psychiatric hospital so I was the first in my family to go to university, ben, you know, benefited from the world post-World World, World first date. Mm-hmm. Born in 1953, I'm quite happy right. to admit that. Yeah. Um, baby boomer. Had a pretty idyllic childhood in Nottinghamshire in the countryside near Sherwood Forest. Yeah. Went to Durham University, read English. And then after that, I joined a theatre and education group, touring around the northeast, performing plays to minors' centres or community centres or schools. And I got married in that time, rashly decided to go and train to be an actress properly and got myself into a London theatre school, which man killed all desire to be on the stage. I find it so utterly cynical and heartless. It was all about the West End and commercial roles. And, and I'd been doing restoration comedy in concert to loads of miners and they loved it. And, uh, so that was, what was that, mid-70s, minor yeah, strikes, all that yeah, stuff going on? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You got it out of your system. 
I definitely got out of the system. I really didn't want to do that. And I just absolutely by accident ended up doing a temporary job in the accounts department of ATV, uh, an ITV company for the, for the Midlands. And I really disapproved of advertising back then, bit of a left-wing rebel. But, you know, lack of knowing what else to do. And it became quite interesting and quite well paid. Ten years later, I found I was still doing it. And suddenly I saw an ad... I mean, gen- this is generally the, the truth. Guardian, For the Guardian, research. exactly. <laughs> the amazing John Webster ad points Love of view. Well. I mean, truly, I mean, even I see it today and I get goosebumps. Ooh, goosebumps. And I think they could run it today, just a bit of different typeface. That's an issue I've always had. Why do you throw away ads? Just a brilliant ad like that. So the ad she's talking about is called Points of View. It's a black and white ad featuring a skinhead charging a businessman. Uh, You look like he's about to kick the shit out of him. Um, And it shows it from different angles. And um, actually, there's a link to it on the blurb of the podcast, so I won't spoil it. It's It's actually worth not revealing what happens in it. You talked about the fact that you cried when you saw that ad. I was last week with my girlfriend in Dublin, who's a bit younger than me, and I was showing, I was interviewing, actually I was interviewing Theo, the person you know, and he had worked with Tony Kay, the famous director, and he has a reel, you know, the YouTube reel of all his ads. And I was looking at them, I started crying as well. She said, what's wrong with you? I said, look at these. And she was crying, they're brilliant. I said, they were on during News at 10. They were on mm. ad breaks. They were proper, you know, the, the coal fires ad for oh, friends yeah. and the, the relaxing yeah. move for, yeah. for uh, British Rail. Yeah. So there was it. And, and, you know, Huge BBH, investment in those in their creativity. Yeah, BBH were the kind of darlings at the time yeah. of advertising. And when you said you didn't approve of advertising from a socialist point of view or whatever when mm. you were younger, mm. I have an ethical issue with it in terms of mm. I, I, I know it problem with Guardian ads or stuff like mm. that but I do have a problem with the Gillette situation a little bit and I do have a problem with you know some of the, the mm. ethics behind some of the big advertisers that we mm. we referenced earlier as it was very easy to get on my high horse after 27 years in the business coming out <laughs> with a reasonably large paycheck but um, the other problem I had was just this research driven sink into uh, mundanity and, and lack of creativity and acne Hmm. what's gone wrong you mean well we've all reached our own accommodation with the sort of moral and ethical side of advertising I suppose and what the Guardian ad did for me was to show me that advertising was just a means of communication what you communicated was up to you you know so like you have good books and you can have evil books but it doesn't mean books are bad and I feel that about advertising so the Guardian ad said God, well, you know, it's not just for global soft drinks. It is for something that I care about. And also, there was something about 30 seconds of dramatising a rather complex concept, which is the Scott Trust, which is about uh, impartial reporting and the truth and seeing things from all angles. That was quite complicated if you had to write it out. But in 30 seconds of drama, they made it utterly clear to me and very emotional and I cared I didn't just know about it I cared about it so I felt there's no reason why advertising can't be used to do all sorts of good things as well as things that you know we all need washing powder and we all need cheese that's a great analogy I mean around the time of the Guardian the independent launch with that great it is are you which Mm. is lovely as well Mm. again a complex message yeah the distillation of that idea which is what advertising can do at its very best is a real art a proper art that the British are still bloody good at um, and the Irish obviously 
British but, Isles. Uh, yeah, the Irish um, advertising wasn't that great. Uh, for some reason, I always I always um, thought because of our, our our abilities in writing and comedy and music that we would have a far better advertising setup in Ireland. Except we were very much under the shadow of the British. Do you think that's what spill and really? Like that, yeah, maybe. But you yeah. just mentioned the, yeah. the, the washing powders. Okay, mm. So they were coming out at the same time with mm. music and still are with this inane, you know, ten out of ten for dads treating housewives and women mm. like a kind of. Zero respect, zero entertainment. Mm. Uh, I mean, Purcell had a couple of things here and there, and some people tried some nice, nice. Did some reasonable Purcell work over the last decade? I suppose the whole um, "dirt is good" strategy yeah. was quite an interesting yeah. insight into um, making parents love their kids getting muddy, and uh, that was perhaps a better strategy than than execution. Really? But um, you know, people say, often say, "Oh, you know, what's happened to advertising? Why isn't it as brilliant as it was?" And we, we try and analyse this because there is something that we would call the golden age syndrome, which is when you look back, you remember two brilliant ads from 1975 mm. and two brilliant ads from 1983, 20, 30, 40 brilliant ads, yeah. but actually okay. they came over a very whole period of time. And last year you'd say there were there was a brilliant Nike ad, there was a brilliant Audi ad, you know, we're still producing some brilliant ads, mm. but there are some things that have changed, I think, in ad creativity. And one of those influences is undoubtedly globalisation. Mostly not a great thing for advertising. Uh, we have less dialogue in ads than we used to have. And we don't have jingles so much and or yeah. catchphrases. So that makes it a bit less powerful, I think. And, and generally, then you've got to produce something that is acceptable in Japan, it's acceptable in Argentina, as well as in Dublin. I mean, research to me is, you know, link testing approach to advertising is going to take away the different... I mean, my, my view in advertising is you work out what you should be, what everyone says you should be doing, you don't do that. You know? mm. So, so uh, when I, I mentioned to you earlier, I worked in Rangers, so John Kieran used to say, you know, after all his years of research, he believes you just need to be famous and available. How do you make yourself distinct? Well, if all car ads are showing a car splashing in puddles down a mountain, you don't do that. Yeah. You do something that stands out. Just before we leave your acting thing, did you, was oh. that your first encounter with sexism? I suppose so. I mean, because I went to a girls-only school, it didn't hit me how differently girls and boys were treated back then, because I only saw how girls were treated, and we yeah. were all encouraged to I be scientists and, and maths. Maybe if I'd gone to a, a, a mixed gender school I'd have seen it more yeah so I, I didn't I didn't feel it mm. back then to Your perform it's very behind whatever you want to do yeah they just support. thought my sister's 10 years older than me so yeah. I was a sort of late surprise and um, basically I could do anything they didn't say oh don't go into try and act because that's not a career they said if you want to do it, do it. They were fantastic. So ATV did it light a fire then for you a little bit in terms of you liked it or by the yeah I was not at ATV by the time I liked it. I was at TSW or Television Southwest. Yeah, suddenly I realised advertising was a worthwhile thing, and in and so I made sure I learnt about it, got to know a bit more about planning, um, and I also decided I don't know what, what age I would have been in, in my early thirties that I wanted to if I was going to be in it I'd quite like to be. In charge. <laughs> like, does that sound the horrendous? Well, like, it, it does sound horrendous, doesn't <laughs> I it? I know what you mean. I, know what you I thought, well, well you know. You change things. Well, exactly. This is my great thing yeah. that women often do run away from power because yeah. it sounds megalomaniac. But I always say it's much worse to be powerless, to see things that you can't change. Whereas if you get in a position of some authority, you can at least can do your best to make it better. 
then so, you have things like a Cheryl Sandberg's Lean In, which polarized a lot of feminists because it was kind of there was something on the nose about her message. I thought. Uh, I'm not massively into sort of Being catch. Well, yeah. I don't think anybody should lean in that much into their work. <laughs> if I'm Another honest, issue. Back to the list. I think we should no, all have. Right. Yeah. I I hate the phrase work-life balance because yeah. I think work is part of life, but you do need a homework balance. Yeah. And I have as least as exciting a time when I'm not at work. Yeah. Um, as I, and I think and everybody often you come up with more ideas when you're, you know, rather than me and my god, I am a massive gardener. My yes. my cabbage patch is the most fertile. Gardening an opera, apparently. That's what the Twitter <laughs> says. I befriended you today, and you befriended uh, me back. Yeah, I did. You went uh, to PhD, which was yes. So I I, I, ended up so I decided I wanted to be an ITV sales director. Mm-hmm. Did that to discover my ambition, and then when I was there, I realised it was pretty boring. Yeah. And so I decided to change my life completely and went over to a media agency. And that company, PhD, was kind yes. of ahead of its time. Because it, it was. the first one that was bringing yeah. planning sort of to the, yeah. to the fore. It was amazing. It was about the same time that Zenith was set up, yes. which was all about bulk and exactly. volume and strength. And, and PhD was in the exact opposite, which was all about planning-led uh, media. And that appealed to me massively. They were my already my great mates, yeah. PH and D, yeah. who I shall be seeing next week. Right. And... I mean, people said I was bonkers because I was giving up an ITV sales director job, which was, you know, bloody masters of the universe nonsense, yeah. to go and join a little startup, massive cut in salary, might fold. But I, you know, I like to change things about yeah, a bit. You only have one rep time around. Yeah, and you think, I, I want to do that. My one was always, if the job kind of scared me, yeah. I, I'd take it. Yeah. So what's your sc- scariest job that you ever took? Leaving Ireland, probably. So uh. I, I had become a. I was a director early in, in an agency called CDP when I was about twenty-one. That was probably about nineteen ninety, and I quickly realised after six years, okay, I could see very quickly twenty years just disappear and suddenly be forty-six or fifty, mm. probably with lots of money and a two-point-four yeah. engine car. This is the trouble. Fortune. The velvet rot. Yeah, and so I sort of, I, I, I kind of said, I've got to shake out of Dublin or Ireland and. I ended up going to Singapore, and this was nervous for me. I was 27, and I was going, throwing all this away and throwing away direction. Um, and it was the best thing I ever did. I always, I always yep. said I'd go for a year or two, and I was 22 years away. I've only recently come back. <laughs> I guess I say that pe- the people, it's like the old book, the people you see, the places you go, I ended up going to China to work, and Thailand to work, and mm. Australia, where I fell in love and got a passport. So my whole life changed yeah. by taking that leap. You know, I think it's I think it's important, and again, it, it comes up an awful lot in these podcasts mm. where people, particularly at a young age, have rebelled, done something different. That moment yeah. where people go, "Are you mad? You know, you're, you you have it made or whatever." Yeah. And that yeah. I think that I did that the other way around. I think I got braver as I got older. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. So um, you kept your fun. love of television. Where, where did mm. your did your love of television? Were you a big TV watcher when you were a kid oh, and all that? I mean, it's absolutely. Maybe one of my great jokes is that I was born in November 1953 because I was prepared to be born because my parents had just bought a television set yeah. for the coronation in 1953. I have never lived in a home without a television set. Yeah. I mean, these days we wouldn't define TV as the yeah. television set. It's the content no, that you no. watch. But, um, yeah, TV is whatever Homer Simpson says. I can't remember 
lover, mother, teacher, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's you know, if you were a working class girl, the first political debate I ever watched was on a TV set. The first opera I ever watched mm. was on a TV set. My first crush was on Doctor Kildare. I mean, you know, it was it brought little, the I world had, to I had me. A little small black and white pocket, yeah. pocket, pocket, pocket in my bedroom because I had a ZX eighty one computer, <laughs> uh, and I think my parents thought that might get me into computers. Didn't, but I but I was able no. to use the rabbit ears to get RT one and to let when I was supposed to be asleep and I could yeah. get black and white and watch Monty Python yeah. and stuff like that. You know? Yeah, I mean, it was it was. But it was just first color arrived. Oh, but it was so exciting, and you felt you were in touch with the world. I lived in a little village in the back of beyond. Mm. Um, it was a sort of contact to the world, but it was also performing as the scripts, you know, mm. dramas, you know, fantastic Wednesday night plays, yeah. Kathy Gamow and all that. Um, I'm still an absolute TV and film. I love cinema very much, and I'm lucky as a member of BAFTA, I get have to get to watch them all and How do you vote. A member of BAFTA? Oh, you slipped somebody a few quid. <laughs> I bet it was those miners' plays that you were doing. <laughs> Wait a second. Somebody, no, I, for, a very long, for a very long time, when I was actually PhD, I was what they call the acceptable face of advertising to the TV industry. Yeah. I was sat on the board of the Edinburgh TV Festival, so I became... I'm one of those sort of bridge people, you know, and I'm not very good at either TV or advertising, but I allow them to talk to each other. Let's go into what's happened, because the digital revolution arrived and where was I? I was probably out in Asia in Saatchi and Saatchi and every and the, the, the what people did was they'd hire one person who knew what a mm. wireframe was or who was able to talk about new website yeah. Yeah. without ever putting the muscle behind it to deliver mm-hmm. work. I found it difficult to understand. People her- were heralding the death of the television commercial, the death of television mm-hmm. hasn't happened. But what did happen is it fractured. I mean in in, in many mm. ways the big enemy to commercial television, which you represent here, is probably more Netflix than whatever mm-hmm. that fear was back then. Give me your give me your pattern now on this. So, so you, you set up Thinkbox. So that's just okay. You were, you were so after Netflix. thirteen years at PhD, yeah. ended up as chair of PhD, about to retire in my early fifties, and got a call saying, "Are you interested in setting up a thing?" Uh, you know, like the Internet Advertising Bureau, the Radio Advertising yeah. Bureau. I didn't see the internet and television as enemies at all. In yeah. fact, we're now at the stage where we now realise the internet might be the biggest distributor of TV yes. to come. Well, it, will be, yeah. it will be when yeah. we've got good enough broadband. It's, mm. But at the moment, broadcasting is the broadcasting is the best tech to get the same content to millions of people at the same time. But one day, we'd love the internet because that means you've got a two-way connection and blah de blah de blah So I had been getting quite frustrated at the lack of that the TV industry's lack of response to some of the challenges and some of the, frankly, you know, lies that were coming from the West Coast of America yeah. about TV and wanting them to fight back. I remember sending off emails from PhD to people running ITV or Channel 4 saying, bloody hell, what, you know, yeah. what are you going to say to that stupid Google thing? I think they just got bored with me telling them <laughs> off and said, oh, all right, come and do it yourself then you think you're that good. So you, did you literally have a blank sheet of paper and work out what this thing was going to be? Well, I did... Very rashly resigned without knowing. First of all, it wasn't even a legal entity. And so we had to sort of absolute start from scratch, fight for a budget. So even though inviting me to come and set this thing up, I then had to go and sell it back to them, to the <laughs> chief execs to say why they should give me millions of pounds to do how this it, thing. How did the funding work? Was it a, did you base it on a share of market? market it's quite an interesting uh, little calculation, the levy calculation. It's a combination of your share of 
advertising revenue and your share of audiences. Mm. So it's a, I won't reveal any more than that. But tell you who was brilliant was Douglas MacArthur, who set up the Radio Advertising Bureau. And he, I think, so this 2000, early 2006, he'd just fallen out with the radio industry. And he said, but I'll tell you, you know, what we did. Don't make it a committee. Make sure you're the chief exec. Yeah. You don't ask their permission to do things. You have a KPIs that you have to meet. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it will just go very slowly. Um, and I see other bodies yeah, operating a committee panels, system. Yeah, yeah. It just is a nightmare. So, so you know, give me some of the the myths and the and the. <laughs> you know, I, I was seeing your, I was reading your uh, annual book. Ah, uh, right. Why is TV not dead? I think TV, well, obviously, partly you get into semantics then. So what we call TV, which would include Netflix, Netflix is absolutely part of TV. It wins TV awards. Um, ITV make content for Netflix. It just doesn't carry advertising. It's not linear and it's not broadcast. Um, Although I I believe, you know, some of the subscription video-on-demand players are thinking about having real-time streaming because actually people quite like sometimes to congregate around a real-time event, yes. particularly yeah. sports. Yeah. yeah. So the idea of having uh, things happening real-time, which is what live TV is, is probably always going to be a, a necessary thing to offer people, but probably less than it is now. So live linear TV. And um, news and stuff like that are very important. Yeah. So, in fact, it was a very interesting piece of research we got. shows the sort of the eight different needs people get from video, which is to connect or to relax, be part of a big event, yeah. to, to escape. And that's where um, Netflix and sort of Sunday night drama escape into a world or Game of Thrones. Yeah. Other times you want to be, it's this morning, you want to watch what's happening now. Mm-hmm. You know, I can ring them. So there's, you know, TV will fill, fulfill different needs. I read a very good, uh, as a planner, I like, I like yeah. companies that get it. When I sort of capture what they're about in, in a very succinct phrase. Netflix, apparently their enemy is sleep. Mm. I think they've made inroads into some people's sleep. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but and this that, idea of launching 24 episodes in one fell yeah. swoop is great. You know? But yeah. funnily enough, the very early days of Sky Plus, you know, the very mm. first recorders yeah. that people had, we were, we, um, I remember doing a piece of research at PhD, funnily enough, about the new habit of binging. People were already learning to record things, stack them up, and then have a massive binging weekend. So that behavior was a latent behavior and a latent need for people to say, I want to watch eight hours of this this weekend. Is it unfair to say that the TV stations missed that of the Netflix idea? Uh, The idea of offering box sets? No, I think Channel 4... Maybe a business model that wasn't so ad-aligned, that was subscription-based, gathering all of them together... I think that's true. I think that's a fair point. It's very simple but I can imagine for you, for example, having to manage different CEOs and different media companies that all want mm. their bit done. And, you know, yeah, I mean, there's no. If Netflix were to carry advertising, they would absolutely be welcome to join Thinkbox. But it's worth probably saying what we think TV advertising is versus video advertising, because you can have a video ad running on a poster at Victoria Station, but right. that's not. We we think the reason TV advertising is powerful is because it's advertising around and in high quality content. People want to watch the content and they relax. They're going to watch something for half an hour or an hour. They find the advertising part of the experience. They're not quickly watching a two minute video 
um, yeah. on social media and the advertising is a real irritation. It's, it's a different thing. So the, it's the TV programs that make it TV advertising right. as opposed to video advertising, which is an escalator panel. I mean, there's going to be more and more video advertising. There's a very good article written recently about this idea that there was a trade-off between ads and content where, when we were growing mm-hmm. up watching television, which, and, and that, you, you have the research that shows, back to your point about The Guardian, that consumers of television always felt the ads were great and they liked them, and today mm-hmm. that number is through the floor. People don't find the advertising stimulating or involving or engaging mm-hmm. as much as they did back then. Mm-hmm. Um, and that contract has been slightly broken. Mm-hmm. The other thing, I, you know, the digital side of things I've written about, um, for example, I play Scrabble on my phone. Oh, and, yeah. You know, after every move, they put a, an ad in mm. with a text that you cannot get off after five it's seconds. Her, I know. I always, always, Basically, always you, it forces you to subscribe. Yeah. Basically, it's using advertising as a, as a punishment yeah. Yeah. to make you upgrade. That's terrible, using yeah. advertising like that. The thing you quoted, that, that the people's liking of advertising as much as the programmes has gone way down, that TGI yeah. number. It's, it's interesting to look at that because... Genuinely, it's partly because people are liking the programs more, honestly, okay. because yeah, they now have more choice. They, there are fewer compromises made. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a one commercial channel. Um, if you didn't like Family Fortunes, Songs of Praise, songs of, you used, but you had to watch it or you had to watch what your partner wanted to watch. Yeah. So generally, there is more enjoyment of TV programs. And that research is not just from us, from lots and lots of sources that people find there's too much TV now to watch. Yeah. But they worry that they get too obsessed yeah. with it. First of all, your main point is that the, the people are still watching television in mm. droves. They're seeing, what is it? In different ways, though. seven yeah. commercials a day or whatever yeah. the number is. Yeah. At normal speed. At normal speed with yeah. the sound on and yeah. not clicking an X. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, my, I, I, I'm, about, I'm working on a paper to present whoever listened to me about this idea that so take Peter Field and Les Bennett, who were two mm. uh, researchers who used the IPG, IPA, IPA, the IPA which data is a, which bank, is a, an effectiveness award data bank to show that brands that use emotional advertising, that use television, uh, that use long-term brand building rather than short-term uh, sales-driven stuff succeed and deliver more shareholder profit. And they've been banging this drum for 15 years. I will be getting up talking to marketeers about how it's much more important to do, you know, work that stands out, mm. work that's a little bit causes people to, to feel something and mm. make them cry or get them angry. But anything that's just bland and nice just doesn't work and you're throwing money away. That's been a drum that's been banged for 15, 20 years. So my view is it's not as if clients haven't got the message and they don't know this, but for some reason. Mm. If you pick the top five advertisers in Ireland, are probably here, and you, I showed you, here's where they spent 60% of their money, here's where they spent 30% mm. this particular spot. And what, what the, the spot would be tame, safe, not rocking any boats, wallpaper. It's very challenging, isn't it? Because the evidence is there. And there are so many reasons why. One is the tenure of marketing directors. So what's the point of building brands for five years' time because you're not going to be there? So I'm going to get a short-term fix. You know, sometimes that's just price-cutting or, you know, bog-offs. It's not always um, response media. But then there has been this sort of massive internet media conspiracy is perhaps too strong a word, but I do think there's been a sort of collusion between the big tech companies and big media agencies. Mm -hmm. 
to move money into search, to move money into clickable online banners and things like that. The algorithm is king today. It doesn't yes. really matter what the yes. content is on. Yes, the attribution. So you basically... Yeah. So if you search for something and it's a paid search, then search gets the attribution of that response, mm. as opposed to the radio ad they heard on the way to work, you know. And then you let these tech companies do the analysis for you, yeah. which I, you know, so many advertisers tell us, yeah. oh, well, we've got had our Google person today and they've helped us plan. You think, yeah. are you mad? So naturally, the attribution, they might look at the whole online journey, but they don't look at the offline journey and say, oh, well, it's the ad in The Guardian that made that person then search for that. So we need to take back marketers must take control of their own attribution analysis and it needs to be in depth which is why when Peter Field and Les Burnett do it and proper econometricians that's why TV and other brand building media come out so strongly but I have a slight worry about making a binary choice I think if you said to Boots say well you can either do spend your million quid creating a short-term effect or you can spend it by creating a long-term effect. They would go for a short-term effect every time. Because if you don't get a short-term effect... There is no long-term. There is no long-term. <laughs> but what, what all we try and say is that actually television produces the biggest short-term effect, but on top of that, you get this massive bonus. Mm. So you need both. Yeah. Find creative work and media choices that will give you a short-term effect, but at the same time, yeah. build your brand equity. And at the moment, we're we're seeing marketing effectiveness go down and that's because people are not taking account of the long-term effect in addition to the short-term. Mm. And on the other issue about quality of content and emotional advertising, there's still this deep suspicion about creativity in agencies and the reason why agencies are coming at us with this work that's a mm. bit avant-garde or different or you mm. know, makes me feel kind of something. And Are you just doing this to win awards? Are you mm. really caring about my brand here? And all you really have, I mean, mm. the, 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 the anchor ad that's running through this conversation that we're having at The Guardian mm. is a great example of mm. what you just said. Take a difficult enough concept, make it something that people can feel and tap into. There, there is a lot of work that was being done for mm. a purpose. Mm. But, I mean, that, that horse has left, left the stage. The, tr- the trouble with TV ads, if you like, is that even pretty average, uninspiring ads work are sort of okay. And it's very hard to persuade people, let go of the average uninspiring that's not going to get you fired ad. Because though we have done work with the IPA to prove that ads that are creatively awarded, far from being self-indulgent, they are something like 11 to 12 times more effective pound for pound. So it's actually absolute madness not to be brave and not to take risks. It's the biggest risk you take is to not be brave. (laughs) You know, the wonderful thing is we have sort of hero people in the industry who do take risks, like Craig Ingalls of John Lewis famously, um, who is just utterly wedded to creativity and spends so much time inputting into that. Because although I'm a media planner by background, actually the creative element is a much bigger lever in terms of well, you, you, you might get the street outside here and ask yeah. hundred people who the most creative advertiser is in Britain they would yeah. say John, John Lewis. Lewis. Yeah. And to get that high ground I know. from a, a, a shop, shop that didn't exactly. that didn't even advertise on T V yeah. yeah. about eight years ago. So that's pretty extraordinary what he's created. Let's move on to your social <laughs> chat now and away from advertising. <laughs> yeah. Are we gonna get out of this hole that we're in not just in a Brexit sense, but what's your view on the world that you live in now? 
I am absolutely traumatised by the concept that we will leave Europe. I do buy that it's brought us peace. I believe it's one big family. But equally, I sort of try and understand the anger that generated the Leave vote that was, in my opinion, I'm afraid, caused by austerity. So apart from all the human misery that austerity generated, I think, needlessly, it's also created this terrible rift uh, potentially, that we're going to take ourselves out of a market that's that's not perfect by any means, but has delivered in in great sense. And for us not to have even considered the Irish situation, it's just we're over there looking criminal. Like we're, we're, it's we're actually criminal. Growing. I mean, when I was growing up, there was the vicious. I would call them vicious politicians around Britain: Thatcher's government, oh. Tebbit, all these. Yeah, guys. and they're they were scary. You know. That's when I joined the Labour Party in well, 1982. <laughs> you know, and there was a there was a pincer movement of capitalism with uh, Reagan, you know, yeah. breaking unions. Mm. I mean, in hindsight, you, I was brought up to be told unions are bad, and you look at it now; they were the only bulwark against mm. rampant mistreatment of workers, which has happened. Mm. I read some of the top five employers in America in the 50s: car companies, Ford, right. Chrysler, American Steel. Companies that paid proper wages with mm. benefits, with health, with with pensions. Mm. Today, the one by unions. One, yes, one, yeah, one, by one by unions. Today, there they are: uh, McDonald's, Walmart. Yeah. Uh, you know, companies that you go. Do you want the job or not? And if not, mm. there's someone else in line, and you don't get any of this. My my view, weirdly, is we, we should be looking to Scandinavia more than maybe some of the European countries to see mm. how you can do free market with a very, very good social side to it, where, you know, this idea that, the, I mean, the worst people I've met are the people who are almost self-made millionaires from poor backgrounds. Who go, are in banks with that? Sort of? Yeah, yeah, but like, pull yourself up by your oh. bootstraps, oh. take responsibility, do what I did. I was, I was poor and now I'm rich, yeah. with no understanding of why we have IQ, for example. If there's someone who has 120 IQ, that means there's someone who has a 70 IQ, mm. probably next door. Who mm. can't do that? Who doesn't have the, the spoons to do that? I know. No, I'm, I, you know, my socialism, I, I, am I even a socialist? I don't know. It's a pretty basic thing about empathy for other human beings. Just seeing somebody who was volunteers at a food bank and, you know, talking about the horrendous levels of distress he sees, people coming in. So ashamed, so humiliated, yeah. but they haven't got any money and haven't got any food, and they have no option but to go to food banks. How can we have created a society uh-huh. like that when there's an immense amount of wealth? So unions got a bad name, and of course nothing's perfect. I'm sure there are abuses. Yes. Absolutely no institution is perfect, but isn't it better to have workers' rights than yeah. not? Yeah. And you can see what happens if you don't protect workers' rights. Workers do get abused. Yeah. So I just can't understand why people aren't prepared to pay taxes. When my accountant says, oh, I'm sorry, you've got to pay a check to you know, whatever, to Inland Revenue, I'm really sorry. I say, don't, you know, no, no, that's fine. That's a school and a hospital. I need schools, hospitals, roads. Like we have a terribly mortifying things in our like four and a half thousand children are homeless in our <laughs> 10 or 11 yeah, People pounds. dying on the streets in yeah. Britain. I can... That just shouldn't be happening. Uh, you know, I've got friends who would go, well, you know, the only reason women get pregnant is so they can get the free money. Uh, you know, your, your comment there about someone going to a food bank, the yeah. absolute 
you know, the, the humble pie, mm. the, the wrong word is humble pie. Oh, humiliation. The humiliation, it's degradation. The, the degradation of having to yeah. go and do that as if someone wants to. Nobody wants to, I know. And who wants to sleep on the street? No, it's you know? just ridiculous, isn't it? So I get very frustrated by mm, very wealthy companies saying they can't, they're obliged to maximise profits to shareholders, so they have to exploit every single international tax loophole yeah. in order to pay the minimum amount of tax. Um, I don't find that in any way admirable. And particularly if those companies then say, oh, we've set up a philanthropic institution. I know. I think, no, fuck off. Pay your tax yeah, first. Exactly. You can't have to philanthropy until you've paid all your taxes. Yeah, yeah. And only then. As I said, nothing's perfect. There's no system. I'm not, I'm not an ideologue, if that's a word. I'm quite happy to compromise, but generally speaking, you know what you want the outcomes to be, and so you work back and say, oh, well, we need that law to be in place then, or we need to pay that, and bingo, really. And I'd much rather, it's very selfish, because that's the society I want to live in. It's not me being kind or anything. I just hate living in a place where where I park my car and there are homeless people sleeping under the steps there. Our approach to giving alms as well has been, you know, it's a bit like the church, it's been, we, we, yeah. we, we get kind of brainwashed. I mean, parents saying to kids, don't give them anyone, they'll only use it on drink and drugs. Mm. I'm kind of going, fine, if that's what they use it on. Yeah. There are people, they can do it. I mean, yeah. this judgmentalism that goes on. It's horrible, isn't it? Is. I read a book once in my teens called Hunger by Knut Hampson, which was just a, a whole novel just about being hungry. And, you know, in it, he, he begs. So I never, ever think... I don't care whether it's spent on drugs, but exactly. in case they might want a sandwich, you know? Yeah. Isn't it better to yeah. let them have a sandwich? Bucks, for bucks. fuck's sake. Yeah. What about the climate thing, Josh? Oh, well, obviously, the single we'll biggest crisis. Well, yeah. <laughs> if you were a cockroach, you might want us to be gone. I worry tremendously about... Uh, my husband is a mad, keen... Uh, Lepidopterist, which is a butterfly yeah, nut. Right. <laughs> oh yes. Sorry, yes. I'm I, your okay, Irish, you're way with of work. Anyone who knows the lepidopterist, does he have the? Uh, we have glass cases with the pins. Oh God, no! They no, wouldn't ever kill, kill anything. Okay. No, no. Is that no. a different type of thing? Well, I suppose it used to be like yeah. that. Now you just catch them on camera, sort of thing. But so we have some fields that have been turned into meadows. But he is so concerned about numbers of not just butterflies but Birds, all insects, insects because it's all a change you don't get any enough caterpillars from the butterflies then you won't get the birds but yeah. and then you know it's i did a podcast on this i'll send it to you he, he, your husband would like it yeah. he would and you, he, he often says look we've just done a journey at night time from here to here there are no insects dead on our when we were kids our windscreen would have been covered the car wash. yeah yeah, yeah. And where are the insects? And we are, we can't live. Insects will survive longer than humans. Yeah. But if they go down far enough, we will, so humans are I, dead. I joined us again, do you want know, me to podcast before? I was over in a, in a again, I won't mention the names. Uh, I would catch them. Uh, they were a public relations company and I was actually on the client side. about to hire them. And somebody said, do, do you have any examples of good CSO you've done? And fair play to the, the head suit flipped open the laptop and had a presentation ready to go and it was for Hagendas about the bees, right? Mm. This is about 15 years ago. So the issue was, you know, bees are dying. Mm. If bees die, Hagendas, which relies on vanilla from pollinated flowers, mm. will cease to exist. And so here's what we did. And they did a beautiful campaign about mm. Save the Bees, which won a can, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I just 
cheekily put my hand up and said, so are the bees okay now? Because <laughs> they stopped doing it. Because they stopped doing it, right? And, oh. and the, the, kind of, the whole room looked around at me going, yeah, don't fucking play the game here, Sean. You know oh. what they were doing. But like, that's the point, problem I have with a lot of CSO work. The bees are still fucked. <laughs> I know your little ad campaign rose awareness. And when Gillette up. stops doing it, women yeah. are still being... For all the advice I give people about how they should invest their media expenditure and what they should do in marketing, probably more important I should tell them to plant pollinating flowers, create corridors for insects, and don't have a new car. I mean, one of the interesting things about advertising is, does it create a false need? That's one of the moral dilemmas I think about. Um, Advertising can be used as a tool of capitalism, but it could also be used as a tool of... Good. renewal yeah, and it's entirely what you choose to do advertising is a brilliant yeah. way to persuade people to do things there. do you want to save the world in which case advertising will be absolutely critical yeah. if we're saying you can have a, a new car less frequently or it's going to be less p- flashy yeah. you've got to give people pros- probably an emotional reward for because they're going to have yeah. a lower physical visceral award, yes, reward yeah, yeah. but they need to be feel good and advertising will have yeah. to do that so I'm very into, we're very into advertising for good. So if you choose to use advertising for the right reasons, it will be an incredibly powerful tool. Yeah. But that will be our society's decision to do that. So ITV's lovely new ad to encourage kids to eat more vegetables, which mm-hmm. you might have seen. Well, That's what advertising can do. Um, what remember. would you say, I, and I also read that when you were 16, you started in a doctor's surgery. What would you oh, say yes. to that Tess boot? Yeah. I'd say keep learning life is very long that sounds weary (laughs) no just it's Uh, a very long your life is going to be very very long and the fact that you think you want to do this now be prepared to completely change your mind change everything learn something new um, and it's never too late. That's what I believe. It's never t- like when I was in my mid fifties. It's never too late to try something new. I'm trying to write a novel based on my Irish granny. Actually, you think, well, it's never too late to try. I'm dealing with rejection letters, which is very fun. Horrid, horrid. So keep going. Try something new. If that doesn't work out, don't sit and suffer. Just move on and learn to do something different. Well, you keep moving on and mm-hmm. do something different. Fresh uh, air still. Thanks for being on my show. Thank you, Sean. You think that was great? <laughs>